Welcome, this is the uh, upper level quiz. We'll be going through the uh, questions and uh, the answers at the same time so you can stop the uh, podcast and uh, perhaps figure out what your answers are and then there'll be a little uh, explanation. Um, there are 19 questions. Um, so we're going to call a distinction 17 out of 19, that would be 90%, or there's actually inside of it 84 questions, so 76 out of 84 would give you a distinction. It's not really very difficult, um, and it just covers the upper limb. Um, we'll move on after a couple of weeks and have a little couple of weeks break and then start with the anatomy of the lower limb. Um, so let's kick off then. Question one. Thoracochromial muscles include A, the levator scapulae, B, the pectoralis major, C, the pectoralis minor, and D, the rhomboid major. And I'd just suggest that you stop now and think about what thoracochromial muscles are, sort of pause the podcast and then we'll come back to the answers. Okay, the division of the muscles, uh, in the way I've defined it uh, in the upper limb sections, is as thoracochromial, thoracoscapular, thoracohumeral, and scapulohumeral. You kind of think of the scapula as a way station in the middle. So the latter, the scapulohumeral, are the short scapula also, or the rotator cuff musculature. The major gyropes, which are thoracohumeral, are the pectoralis major and the latissimus dorsi, sort of flexion and extension of the arm. And the thoracohumeral muscles that have a very wide origin have very short focused insertions, as we know. The relevant vertebra or thoracoscapular muscles are the subclavius, the levator scapulae, the rhomboids major and minor, the trapezius, the pectoralis minor, and the serratus anterior. And we've covered each of those separately. And you can see the podcast on the pectoral girdle. Have a, a re-listen to that for the, uh, the further answer to this question. So the thoracoacromial muscles, you can then see out of the list of what we're including so it's strictly uh, really the rhomboid major, isn't it, there? And the uh, levator scapulae would be thoracochromial in that list. Got it? Question two. The axial artery um, of the upper limb is the A, anterior interosseous artery, B, the median artery, 
see the posterior interosseous artery or D, the ulnar collateral artery. Let's have a think about those. Well, here we're asking really the axial artery of the upper limb, which we know is the median artery. That's a branch of the common interosseous artery, usually running along the median nerve. And its lower limb homologue, as we know, is the companion artery of the sciatic nerve, the arteria comitans nervi ischiadici, and that runs always along the sciatic nerves, always bleeds with an above-knee amputation. So in this case, the axial artery of the upper limb is the median artery, but it's a continuation, really, the vestigial remnant of the common interosseous. So B is the correct answer there. Um, Question three, the branches of the axillary artery, jeepers, we know these, um, A, have their equivalent venous tributaries entering the cephalic vein, B, includes the superior and lateral thoracic branches, C, includes the ulnar collateral artery, D, has costal branches from the thoracocranial artery. Just a minute to... A few seconds to think about those. Well, the axillary artery, the venous tributaries which correspond to the thoracocranial artery are clavicular, pectoral, deltoid, and axillary. Cats pee all day, if you think of that. And they enter the cephalic vein, not the axillary vein. And that's like the lower limb, we'll see later, with the equivalent branches of the femoral artery, the venous tributaries, the um, superficial epigastric, superficial circumflex iac, superficial and deep external pudendals, all those veins enter the great satinous vein and not the femoral vein. So the answer to A, have their equivalent venous tributaries entering the cephalic vein, is correct. B includes the superior and lateral thoracic branches. We know that's correct. We remember there's one branch from the first part, the superior thoracic artery, two branches from the second part, the thoracocranial and lateral pectoral, so we've included that, or lateral thoracic, and three branches from the third part. We remember those as sort of anterior, posterior, circumflex humeral, and the circumflex scapula, which becomes the subscapula. Uh, so B is correct as well. The branch of the axillary artery include the ulnar collateral artery? Well, that's not so. That's a branch of the brachial artery, not the axillary artery. By definition, the lower border of the teres major. And D has costal branches from the thoracocromia. We just mentioned the C for is for clavicular, not costal. So there are no costal branches of the thoracocromial artery. It's a pretty easy question. But to read it carefully or listen to it carefully... Um, question four. The upper limb has the cutaneous innervation A that is purely from the brachial plexus. B is partially formed by the collateral branch of the second intercostal nerve. C has a cervical plexus component. And D forms a ring between the upper lateral cutaneous and the lateral and medial cutaneous branches. Let's have a think about that for a second. Um, the thing about the upper limb is that the cutaneous branches drag the neck down and the thoracic wall 
sort of across laterally as part of the formation of the upper limb bud. We've been through that several times. And that means that the supraclavicular nerves come over the cape area of the shoulder and it pulls the intercostobrachial nerve from T2, which is really the collateral branch of the second intercostal. You can even get a collateral branch with the third intercostal that runs and innervates the floor of the axilla and the medial aspect of the arm. So the answer is that is purely from the brachial plexus as cutaneous innervation of the upper limb is not true. Of course, the upper and lower limb are very different here. So A is wrong. B is partially formed by the collateral branch of the second intercostal nerve. As we've said, that, sometimes the third nerve, supplies the floor of the axilla. That's the intercostobrachial nerve, so that's correct. C has a cervical plexus component. Well, that's correct too. The supraclavicular nerves are part of C234, and that forms the medial, intermediate, and lateral supraclavicular nerves. They're often pretty big, these nerves, and they used to be typically injured uh, when someone did, for example, a supraclavicular node biopsy. Now, it's not really done as an operation, but it was a common operation and a common side effect because these are fairly large nerves with quite a wide area. And D forms a ring uh, between the upper lateral cutaneous lateral and medial cutaneous branches. That's true, the upper lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm is the axillary nerve, the lateral branch of the radial nerve, the medial is a separate branch of the medial cord of the brachial plexus, but they do uh, fill in the space around the upper arm, so that's strictly correct as well. Question five. The clavicle, A, is the first bone to ossify, B ossifies endochondrally. C has a nutrient vessel directly from the subclavian artery. And D is similar in length and width between the sexes. So think about some of those things that we know about the clavicle. We went through that. The clavicle is the first bone to ossify. Yeah, that's correct. It ossifies at about, begins its ossification at about five weeks or so. B, it ossifies endochondrally. That we know is incorrect. It's an intramembranous ossification. C has a nutrient vessel directly from the subclavian artery. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. The nutrient vessel is actually a branch of the suprascapular artery. It's a branch of the thyrocervical trunk, so it's an indirect branch of the subclavian artery. Kind of true, but not really. And D is similar in length and width between the sexes. Well, we know that's uh, false. It's actually quite a complex gender difference in the clavicles. The clavicles in men are longer, wider and thicker than in women. Uh, the right clavicle typically has a greater medial depth, also particularly in women, so there's a differential effect between the right and left. The clavicles in men have a greater kind of lateral depth so the left clavicle is typically about one to four millimetres longer than the right, but the right is typically a bit more robust. The sternal angles are a bit larger in women as well, so there's a lot of differences that are, that are there. You don't need to remember all of these differences, just remember that there are differences, and these can affect the need, for example, for open reduction internal fixation um, can vary because of uh, kind of gender and personal differences. 
inside differences. Um, question six. There's a double question five here, so perhaps we've got 20 questions. Anyway, <coughs> blood supply of the breast includes A, the lateral thoracic artery, B, the perforating branches of the intercostal arteries, C, has venous drainage into the posterior intercostal veins, and D, does not drain into the hemiazygos system. Uh, this means we've got to know a little bit about thoracic drainage here as well, thoracic wall drainage, and we'll cover that either later this year in the thorax or early next year, if, um, depending on how long the lower limb takes. The blood supply of the breast, obviously, the arterial supply is a sort of circular periareolar blood supply, and it does include the lateral pectoral or lateral thoracic. The perforators, typically those of the second, third, and fourth uh, of the anterior intercostals, those are often called the anterior mammary in particular, but they're branches of the anterior intercostal, so pulling off a, a mass off the um, chest wall medially is where they come from, they're particularly prominent. And uh, so the lateral thoracic artery is correct. Perforating branches of the intercostal arteries are also, as we know, correct. These are the mammaries, second, third, and fourth has venous drainage into the posterior intercostal veins. Venous drainage can be <coughs> actually into the azygos vein on the right, and it's equivalent uh, on the left, which is a kind of regressed structure above the diaphragm, is called the left accessory hemiazygos system. The system above the diaphragm is the accessory hemiazygos system. The system below the diaphragm is the hemiazygos system. So it depends which side you're on, but it has venous drainage into the azygos system, not into the posterior intercostal veins, and it does drain into the hemiazygos, well, the accessory hemiazygos system. So it does not drain into the hemiazygos system is correct in D. So just to sort of remember that in embryological terms, if you look at the venous drainage, above the diaphragm, which is very variable, but it does have some kind of structure. If we remember that there's actually, uh, in fetal development, a left um, superior vena cava system in the fetus, and what happens there is that that regresses, and as it regresses, it forms the accessory hemiazygos system on the left. Because it regresses, it forms into a left innominate vein or left brachiocephalic vein, if you like, which joins the right brachiocephalic vein at around about the second intercostal space, just below the sternoclavicular joint on the right, to form the superior vena cava. But because of that regressing left superior vena cava system, then the left brachiocephalic vein or the left innominate vein runs all the way across the chest wall to the right-hand side. And therefore, its venous tributaries are different to the right brachiocephalic vein. For example, we're not talking about the thorax yet, but we're explaining the system. For example, <clears throat> the both brachiocephalic veins pick up the vertebral vein, but the left brachiocephalic vein, because it runs all the way across to the right-hand side, picks up the thymic veins 
and also from the root of the neck, the inferior thyroid veins. And that's why that's the case. It also picks up the left superior intercostal vein. We'll consider that later when we talk about the thorax. If you look below the diaphragm, then we have in the fetal development both an inferior uh, vena cava on the right, but also a fetal IVC, inferior vena cava, on the left. And because the left system regresses, that becomes the hemiazygos system. But that explains why the left renal vein runs all the way across to the cava on the right, and therefore also why the tributaries of the left renal vein are different to the tributaries of the right renal vein. Veins don't have branches, they have tributaries. So on the right renal vein, for example, that goes into the cava. But on the left, the left picks up the left gonadal vein, either the testicular vein or the ovarian vein, and the left suprarenal vein. And so what I'm trying to explain here is the reason why there are differences between the left and the right venous systems, and that has to do with a regressing superior or inferior vena cava, depending on what level you are above the diaphragm. It becomes, I'm repeating myself deliberately, it becomes the accessory hemiazygos system, and below the diaphragm, it becomes the hemiazygos system. So it's not just understanding a little bit about the venous drainage of the breast, we're trying to understand the developmental drainage, venous drainage of the chest and abdominal wall. Okay, I, I think this is question seven, so I've got my question numbers wrong, but nevertheless, we'll keep going. The surgical boundaries of the axilla include, so this is for those understanding the surgery of axillary lymphadenectomy, that's the point of this question. The surgical boundaries are A, the serratus anterior, B, the pectoralis minor, C, the teres major, and D, the first rib. You can sort of stop the tape uh, and even between individual things and think about each one. So let's be clear, the medial wall of the axilla is the serratus. The anterior wall is the pectoralis major. The posterior wall is actually the latissimus dorsi, the sort of tenderness part of that. And the superior boundary is the axillary vein. The floor of the axillary dissection is the subscapularis muscle. And there's really no kind of inferior limit. The pectoralis minor separates off, as we remember, the clavipectoral fascia, and that defines the type of auxiliary lymph node dissections. But that's not strictly a boundary. So the answers to this question are, of course, the medial wall is the serratus anterior. And then I suppose you could say the top of it is the first rib. But the teres major and the pec minor are not strictly walls or boundaries of an axillary dissection. And if you look at the artificial nature of the axilla, there's kind of no real inferior limit. It's a bit like Gerota's fascia, and we come to that in the abdomen. You'll see that there's no actual inferior anatomical limit to that. All right, we may call the next question, which I think is question eight, but I've got it here on my list as question seven. But anyway... The clavipectoral fascia, so we're kind of sticking with that to understand a little bit about its anatomy, A, is in continuity with the prevertebral fascia, B, splits around the subclavius, C, lies in front of the pectoralis minor muscle, and D, envelops the axillary artery. I think it's probably better to stop with each 
particular question and say, is that correct? Isn't it correct? And if it's correct, why it's correct? Why it's not correct? Whatever. So I'll give you a little time to think about that. So this clavipetral fascia is actually in direct continuity, not with the prevertebral fascia, but with the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. If you want to go back to the original head and neck AHN1 that was on triangles of the neck and fascia, and you'll recall that. It's really this the clavicle is sort of intervening between the investing layer of deep cervical fascia above and the clavipectoral fascia below. The prevertebral fascia is, of course, posterior to that. That runs down to the bottom of T3 over the top of the scalene muscle. So I mentioned before that was important in limiting a prevertebral abscess, which was a feature usually of thoracic tuberculosis or POTS disease. That's the reason why that fascia was ever mentioned, because it doesn't have a particular relevance apart from staying away from it in neck dissections because it's covering the brachial plexus. The clavipectoral fascia does split around the subclavius, and I've said it's interrupted by the clavicle, and then it splits, as I've said, around the pectoralis minor muscle. And we take advantage of that if one divides the very short pectoralis minor tendon in a modified pate mastectomy or auxiliary dissection, it allows you to see directly over the auxiliary vein. It allows you to clear the so-called interpectoral lymph nodes, what are called uh, rotter's lymph nodes. Uh, but often uh, it, it may be associated with injury sometimes um, to the medial pectoral nerve, which is coming through the pectoralis minor into the pectoralis major. That uh, mastectomy where the pec minor tendon is divided, but the pec minor is left in place. Some people call that an Alchenloss mastectomy. And then the auxiliary sheath, of course, is not formed from the clavipectoral fascia. That's different. So the next question. Um, the subscapular arterial anastomosis a, includes a connection between the third part of the auxiliary artery and the first portion of the subclavian artery. You might switch your uh, tape off or pause it and think about that. If the answer is correct, why is it correct? If the answer is not correct, why is it not correct? That's the way to deal with this. So then B, well, we'll say is a branch, is a brachial auxiliary collateral network. The subscapular arterial anastomosis is a brachial auxiliary artery collateral network. C is formed by the dorsal scapular artery and D supplements the superficial cervical artery. There's a few tricks in here. Now, I have to say this is a little bit confusing for me. There is a dorsal scapular artery from the third portion of the subclavian artery, although I must say I'm a little uncertain about the true incidence of this artery, but it is the vascular connection that is normally present between the medial or vertebral scapula with the circumflex scapula and subscapular vessels. So this is then a connection between the first portion of the subclavian artery and the third portion of the auxiliary artery. So part of, uh, well, A is certainly correct. So the subscapular arterial anastomosis includes a connection 
between the third part of the axillary artery and the first portion of the subclavian artery. If there's an obstruction that occurs there, there's a natural collateral network that is already in place. When we come to the lower limb, there's a similar arrangement as well around the external iliac artery and the internal iliac artery, and this occurs around the anterior superior iliac spine. I won't go into it in detail, but there's an homology between the lower limb, therefore, and the upper limb. If, for example, there's an occlusion of the common iliac artery, then there are branches of the femoral artery which will collateralise naturally, uh, and that, that includes the superficial circumflex iliac. There's a branch from the external iliac artery. There's not many branches from the external iliac artery, only the inferior epigastric and the relevant one here for us, <coughs> which is the deep external iliac, uh, 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 deep circumflex iliac. And that deep circumflex iliac also runs to the anterior superior iliac spine. So there's a natural collateral network between the external iliac and the femoral. And the internal iliac has branches which are iliac coming from the iliolumbar artery, and that's coming from the internal iliac or from the posterior division of the internal iliac, and that also runs up that region. Also, there are branches of the superior gluteal, which is part of the posterior division of the internal iliac. The point I'm trying to make here is that the internal iliac, external iliac, and femoral have a common collateral network around the bone of the anterior superior iliac spine. And in the upper limb, we've got a natural collateral network that's present if the axillary artery is occluded between the th its end portion and the upward portion of the subclavian. And that's between this dorsal scapular artery and the circumflex and subscapular vessels, circumflex scapula and subscapular vessels. So these are natural collateral networks. When you look at an arteriogram, for example, in the upper limb, if you see an occlusion of the axillary artery, the subclavian artery, there's a lot of collaterals around the vertebral border of the scapula that are normally there, and they become enlarged and open up. And that's the reason for that. If you look at, a, at a, 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 an angiogram, for example, of common iliac occlusion, which is much more common, then you'll see a lot of collateral networks around the anterior superior iliac spine, and that's the reason um, for, for that. So that's the answer of that. Um, in sum, I think there's a bit of confusion, as I say, still in this question. The deep cervical artery, which as we remember is a branch of the thyrocervical trunk, doesn't actually really exist in some people. And there's a big dorsal scapular artery, in that case, coming from the third portion of the subclavian. And here, any additional vessel that's coming from the thyrocervical trunk is known as a superficial cervical artery, which is really kind of just a vestigial deep cervical artery. So the, the last bit was supplements the superficial cervical artery, the subscapular arterial anastomosis. It's a bit of a um, kind of confusing question, but... The, the, the point is to know what a superficial cervical artery is. And the answer is it does supplement that. If you've got a dorsal scapular artery, you may have a poor deep cervical artery from the thyrocervical trunk, in which case it's sometimes called the superficial cervical artery. A little bit confusing in that. It's worth reading last about that, but even that's a little bit confusing sometimes. We might go now through each point, which might be another easier way of dealing with it. In the elbow, this is the next question, question 10 I think it is. In the elbow, A, there is a trilaminar structure. 
to the medial collateral ligament. So think about that. Is there or isn't there? And if so, what do we know about it, basically? A second, think about that. Well, the medial or ulnar collateral ligament has an anterior, posterior and middle band attached to the sublime tubercle of the medial aspect of the coronoid process. The ulnar nerve sits in the middle part of that. So it is a trilaminar structure, not just saying, yes, it is. We need to know what it is, and that's the point that I'm describing. In the elbow B, the radial collateral ligament is separate from the annular ligament. Have a think about that. Well, that's not true. The radial collateral ligament attaches to the annular ligament that runs around the radial head. The head is free within that. All right, in the next one, uh, in the elbow, the elbow's in continuity with the superior radioalma joint. Well, that's a pretty easy one. The superior radioalma joint is, of course, in continuity with the main elbow. The difference is with the wrist and the inferior radioalma joint. And in the elbow, D, the elbow is innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve. Is that correct? Well, we want the answer in the answer, not just the musculocutaneous nerve, but what are the other nerves that innervate it? The nerve supply of the elbow joint includes the musculocutaneous nerve, the median, ulnar and radial nerves. In fact, all of the nerves really are part of the innervation. So question 11, signs of a potentially irreparable brachial plexus injury, one that can't be repaired, is unlikely to be reparable. A, a Horner's syndrome, B, an inability to brace the scapula, C, weak shoulder abduction, D, an inability to externally or internally rotate the shoulder, and E, intractable arm pain. Have a think about that for a second. We're using the anatomy to understand the presence of problems which may be clinically relevant here. Now, um, frequently, I must say, when somebody's had a brachial plexus injury and they've got a flail limb, you can't test some of these things acutely because they can't kind of move the limb or it's extremely painful to do so but in the way I've laid it out in the podcast we examine the limb for proximal injuries which might suggest root avulsion and the findings obviously can differ a little bit with plexus pre or post fixation but in normal circumstances a Horner's syndrome would be a bad prognostic sign as it would suggest really shearing of the high connection to the paravertebral sympathetic chain off the spinal nerves. An inability to brace the shoulders would suggest rhomboid denervation and again an effect of the rootlets of the dorsal scapula which is C5. That's pretty close to the spinal cord likely to be irreparable. Shoulder abduction is the effect of the supraspinatus and the deltoid which are from the suprascapular nerve. We remember the normal anatomy is that comes from the upper trunk, can even come from the posterior cord, and potentially this could be reparable. And then external or lateral rotation or internal or medial rotation of the shoulder 
is the province of the infraspinatus and the teres minor, or of the pec major, supraspinatus, subscapularis. They're all chord branches or a trunk branch and theoretically could be potentially operable or reparable. Intractable arm pain we can argue about, but that's a bad sign and it usually indicates a high sympathetic injury. It's not by itself an absolute indicator of inoperability. Um, so they're not perfect, these questions, but they're made to sort of think about the anatomy. So um, question 12, I think we're on to. The quadrangular space A is bounded by the teres major, B is bounded by the teres minor. C shares a medial border with the medial head of triceps and D is associated with nerve compression. Have a think about that for uh, a minute or so. The boundaries of the space depend really on whether it's viewed from the front or the back. The back is the infraspinatus and the teres minor, and the teres major and the subscapularis are anteriorly. The common border, of course, laterally is the humerus, and medially, that was wrong, it's not the medial head of triceps, it's the long head of triceps, which happens to be medial, but it's called the long head of triceps. And we remember there is a compression syndrome which can be reproduced by narrowing the space, usually with a flexed elbow and a handshake. And if you laterally rotate the hand in shoulder rotation, that sharpens up the infraspinatus a little bit and that causes or reproduces or exacerbates pain. So we can see what the answers there are. is associated with nerve compression. C is wrong. It shares a medial border with a long head of triceps. And it is bounded by teres major and minor, depending on which way you're looking at it. Question 13. The ancaneus A originates from the lateral supracondylar ridge of the humerus and needs to be stripped to expose the humerus for an open reduction and internal fixation. B is attached to the lateral collateral ligament of the elbow. C is innervated by a branch of the radial nerve and D is separate from the elbow joint capsule. Now all of those points about ancaneus, which is not a vital muscle, are all clinically actually important. They're important for exposing the humerus, they're important for not nipping the capsule during elbow extension. So the muscle actually is an extension of the lateral head of the triceps muscle anatomically and functionally. It originates from the lateral epicondyle, not the lateral supracondylar ridge. And it does need to be stripped for a posterior elbow exposure. It's attached to the lateral collateral ligament, so that is actually correct. And posteriorly, it attaches to the elbow capsule. So that's also correct. And as I've said, as the arm is extended, the capsule isn't nipped into the joint. Uh, there's a similar muscle, the articularis genu on the knee. The branch of the radial nerve that innervates ancaneus is, comes from the radial nerve, so that bit's correct as well, is that which goes to the medial head or the deep part of the triceps. So I want you to 
not only understand, you know, whether a particular answer is correct or not, but kind of why it's correct, and in a sense, a little bit about the backstory around why it's correct. Question 14. Shoulder stability. A has active stabilizers, which include the deltoid muscle. Well, that's a pretty general answer. B is a feature of differential bony geometry between the humerus and the scapula. That's a pretty generic answer as well. C is unaffected by the labrum. D is supported by the biceps and triceps. And E is unaffected by the glenohumeral ligaments. So what we're asking you here is what are the factors controlling shoulder stability? So either we can answer a multi-choice question like this or we can create a short answer question. There are active and passive elements in stability. As we know, the active muscle elements include or components the deltoid, the biceps and the rotator cuff musculature. We know also the disparity in surface area between the humerus and the glenoid. That's the principal element for instability or allowing flexibility, a factor of a four times difference. We know that that's enhanced by the labrum glenoid ali, which increases the socket element of the joint and which, of course, forms the basis of the bankart repair in recurrent or habitual shoulder dislocation. And the other important element is, of course, the coracochromial arch. And these rather weak glenohumeral ligaments, which are not often considered, they are important on arthroscopy, the anterior and the inferior glenohumeral ligaments, and they are the primary and they are primary anterior joint stabilizers. So we can see what answers there are correct. It has active stabilizers, which include the deltoid. A is correct. It is a feature of differential bony geometry between the humerus and the scapula. That's correct. Is unaffected by the labrum. Well, that's incorrect. Is supported by the biceps and triceps, which are guy ropes that do support um, the shoulder to some extent, the triceps inferiorly, the biceps anteriorly, and is unaffected by the glenohumeral ligament. Well, that's not correct. It is affected anteriorly and inferiorly by the anterior, anterior and inferior glenohumeral ligaments. Question 15. The humerus. A has a high growing end. B has separable centres for the uh, capitulum uh, and trochlea. C gives origin to the brachioradialis and the extensor carpi radialis longus above the elbow. And D, the surgical neck of the humerus is at the epiphyseal line. Have a think about each of those. Well, the growing end of the humerus is at the upper end, so it does have a high growing end. Uh, there are separable ossific centres for the capitulum and the lateral trochlea. There are around about two. If we remember also the ossification, there's one for the medial epicondyle at five, and that whole sort of mass then fuses at skeletal maturity. The lateral supracondyl ridge gives origin to the brachioradialis and the extensor carpi radialis, but not the extensor carpi the extensor carpi radialis longus, but not the extensor carpi radialis brevis. Uh, 
So it gives origin to the brachioradialis and the extensor carpi radialis longus above the elbow is correct. And then finally, the surgical neck of humerus, which is the thing that breaks, that actually lies below the epiphysis. So it's not at the epiphyseal line. And that's relevant in somebody who would break their humerus uh, before epiphyseal closure. All right, question 16. In the forearm, we're getting down there now, A, the main nerves usually pass between individual muscular heads. We might just stop that there and think about that for a second. Well, the main nerves do pass between the muscle origin heads, and that's important for exposure of these nerves. The median nerve passes between the heads of the pronator teres, the ulna nerve between the heads of the flexor carpial maris, the radial nerve between the heads of the supinator. That's just the basis of the way that it works. In the forearm B, the nerve of the extensor compartment is the deep branch of the radial nerve. Have a think about that for a sec. Well, the extensor compartment nerve is the posterior interosseous nerve. So we've got to be strict and talk about strict definitions. Before it perforates the supinator, supplying the extensor carpi radialis brevis and supinator, it's the deep branch of the radial nerve. But once it's in the extensor compartment, it's the compartment nerve, which is the pin, the posterior interosseous nerve. In the forearm C, the median nerve can be approached between the palmaris longus and the flexor digitorum profundus. Well, the median nerve adheres to the undersurface of the flexor digitorum superficialis. And although it is on top of the flexor digitorum profundus, it's generally approached at the wrist between the palmaris longus, if that's present, and the flexor carpi radialis. It lies on the FDP. Okay? So that's strictly not quite right. And in the forearm D, infections spreading from the palm is limited to the level of the wrist. Have a think about that. Talking there about palmosepsis and forearm sepsis. So infection can spread along a suppurative tenosynovitis into that so-called space of perona, which communicates in front of the pronata quadratus underneath the flexor digitorum superficialis on top of the flexor digitorum profundus and the interosseous membrane. So palm sepsis, if it were left long enough, could spread up above the wrist in that, in that particular manner, in front of the pronata quadratus, in front of the extension of the wrist capsule, the sacciform extension. All right, question 17, and uh, we're now on to the extensor forearm. In the extensor forearm, the common extensor origin gives origin to the extensor carpi ulnaris and the extensor digitorum. That's A. Have a think about that for a second. So what is the common extensor origin? Well, that attaches the extensor carpi ulnaris, the extensor carpi radialis brevis, the extensor digiti minimi, and the extensor digitorum. So it doesn't attach everything, but it attaches a lot of muscles, but those big ones. And then there's, of course, the deep muscles of the thumb. They've got a deep origin, as we remember, 
abductor pollicis longus, extensor pollicis brevis, and extensor pollicis longus, and not to forget, don't forget, extensor indices. They're different muscles. So the common extensor origin is extensor carpi radialis brevis, extensor digiti minimi, extensor carpi ulnaris, extensor digitorum. Those are the four big ones. So in the extensor forearm B, the superficial head of the supinator arises from the humerus. So the question is asking you really, what are the origins of the supinator? Well, the deep head of the supinator originates from the lateral surface of the ulna, the area called the supinator crest, for that reason, really. And that area needs to be stripped if that area of bone, that part of the bone, it needs exposure. There's then a superficial slip which runs vertically, kind of in line with the ancaneus insertion, as I've mentioned in one of the podcasts, like a flying buttress. And that too may need to be stripped off, but there's a deep component and this superficial component in origin. In the extensive forearm, see the extensor retinaculum has radius and ulnar attachments. Have a think about that. Well, I made a bit of a deal about this in one of the podcasts. We know that the extensor retinaculum can't attach to both the pre- and post-axial bones. Otherwise, it would be very redundant, particularly in pronation. Last says by a factor of 25 or 30% or so. But it can't attach to both bones. you think that it would, but it won't be... It would be slack in pronation and taut in supination. It does have a lateral bony attachment, but not a medial one. So it attaches to the piziform and the triquetrum, the deep fascia of the arm, which has an attachment to the ulnar styloid, but no radius attachments. And that provides a greater freedom for flexible movement, pronation and supination. And then finally, in the extensor forearm, the extensor carpi ulnaris crosses the distal radioulnar joint. Well, what we're asking there is what's the order of crossing of these extensor tendons across the wrist. In uh, this one, the extensor carpi ulnaris passes not over the distal radioulnar joint, but over the head of the ulna. And it's the extensor digiti minimi which passes over the distal radioulnar joint. And they're important, obviously, to identify for sepsis and injury and for tendon transfer and identification during surgery. So that's the reason for that question. Question 18. In the hand, A, the flexor pollicis brevis may be innervated by the ulnar nerve. Let's stop there. Flexor pollicis brevis innervated by the ulnar nerve. Well, that seems wrong. But the answer is, of course, it can be right. As we know, the flexor pollicis brevis may insert what's called the flexor pollicis brevis. It should insert into the lateral sesamoid. But if any of it inserts into the medial sesamoid, then that can either be part of a first palmar enterosis, which we usually don't have because we've got an adductor pollicis, but you can have an extra palmar enterosis, or more likely it's part of an adductor. And if it is part of that adductor, then that would normally be innervated by the ulnar nerve. 
So you can have what's called a flexor pollicis brevis, which can be innervated by the ulnar nerve. Maybe it's not a strict flexor pollicis brevis, it's more part of the adductor pollicis, usually the case, or sometimes an extra first palmar enterosis. In the hand, B, the thenar space only includes the first lumbricle. So you know, lumbricals run in a little channel or tunnel, and so lumbrical sepsis can run down into either the thenar space or the mid-palmar space. The first and occasionally the second lumbricals can enter the thenar space, and that means the point of where that septum defines the mid-palmar space or the thenar space, and that defines the anatomical nature of the spread of deep sepsis in the hand, whether it's more towards the thenar side or the mid-palm. In the hand C, the proper digital nerves are deep to the vascular arch. Think about that for a second. So what we're asking, one thing we're asking, is what are proper digital nerves as opposed to common digital nerves. And this is important. If you put your hand through a piece of glass, if you've got arterial bleeding, do the arteries lie in front of the nerves? Or if the nerves lie in front of the arteries, there's arterial bleeding, you're likely to actually have a digital nerve injury. What's a proper digital nerve? What's a common digital nerve? That's what that question's asking, the reason for that. The common digital nerves actually lie behind the palm arches, specifically the superficial palm arch. And the proper digital nerves, once you get to the web space and the digit itself, are more superficial. So the vascular arterial injury here at that level is usually associated with a digital nerve injury. So the question is, the proper digital nerves are deep to the vascular arch. Well, that's not correct for a start. It's the common digital nerves there, and they are deep to the vascular arch there, um, superficial vascular arch at that point. So there's a kind of double negative and a positive in there somewhere, if you can understand that. Um, in the hand D, the superficial ulnar nerve innervates the muscles of the fourth metacarpal space. Have a think about that. Again, we're asking really some homology here between the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve and the deep branch of the ulnar nerve, what happens there, and kind of equilibrating it also with the foot. The superficial ulnar nerve doesn't innervate any muscles, maybe apart from the palmaris brevis, if it's present, which you can see in your hand. If you abduct the little finger, you'll see the dimpling on the inner aspect of your palm. That's the palmaris brevis. That is the muscle innervated by the superficial ulnar nerve. In the foot, its homologous nerve, the lateral plantar nerve, is the thing that innervates the muscles of the fourth uh, metatarsal space. In other words, the third plantar and the fourth dorsal interosseus, as well as things like the abductor digiti minimi and the flexor digiti minimi brevis. But the point about those is those deeper muscles are innervated by the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve. But in the ulnar nerve, the only muscle innervated is this palmaris brevis, uh, and not the deep muscles or the interosseum, not the muscles of the metacarpal space. So that's wrong. And then in the hand, the lumbrical extends the PIP joints. Well, attachment of the lumbricals and the interossei 
one in front of and the other behind the deep transverse metacarpal ligament respectively, they have the job of flexing the metacarpophalangeal joints and they do extend the proximal interphalangeal joints. Uh, so uh, that is important. Um, so you can have lumbricals that still obviously are innervated. You can have the interossei that are denervated in an alt nerve palsy, for example. Question 19. In the carpus A, the os intermediale is formed by the capitate. Well, that requires us to know a little bit about os intermediale, a bit about the formation of the hand or the carpus and tarsus. The os intermediale is compared with the foot. It includes the lunate and the lateral tubercle of the talus in the foot. In humans, the os radiale and centrale fuse and they become the scaphoid. And the fourth and fifth of the distal row in the carpus fuse to form the hamatum. The pisiform appears as a kind of separate, not strictly sesamoid, for the flexor carpal naris. So that latter, the pisiform, has no homologue or counterpart in the foot. We remember in the case of the tarsus, the os tibiale and os intermediale fuse and they form the talus, whereas the os fibulare becomes the calcaneus. The os centrale, as I've said in the foot, is the navicular, and the fourth and fifth of the distal rows sort of fuse to form the cuboid. So the um, first one there, the os intermediale, is formed by the lunate, not the capitate. B, in the carpus, radial deviation of the hand is made or performed by the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis brevis. Well, the point about this question is to understand how the wrist movements are made. Uh, radial distraction of the hand is by a concerted action of the flexor and extensor muscles on the radial side that have the same insertional bones but on different sides. So the flexor carpi radialis and the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis do that action on the radial side. The extensor carpi radialis longus, the extensor carpi radialis brevis, insert into the second and the third metacarpal bases, just as does the flexor carpi radialis on the other side. And that's the point of understanding it. So question C in the carpus, scaphoid blood flow is antigrade. Have a think about that for a second. The flow for the scaphoid, particularly its proximal component, we know is retrograde, which is why is it, it is at risk for avascular necrosis in a waste scaphoid fracture. D, in the carpus perilunar dislocation, is due to posterior disruption of the ligament to the capitate. So again, what we're asking there is about lunar and perilunar dislocation. What's the anatomy of that? That's correct regarding perilunar dislocation. This area is non-articular, but it has strong ligaments between the capitate and the lunate. And so you should look up the difference between lunate dislocation and perilunar dislocation, the anatomy of. And E, the thumb metacarpal ossifies like the phalanges. 
that requires a little bit of knowledge there. The thumb does ossify like the phalanges, which have their epiphyses in the bases of the bone, whereas the typical metacarpal ossifies at its head. Question 20, that's a palsy question in ulnar nerve palsy. One anatomical feature, A, this is one anatomical feature, is froment's sign. Okay. So have a think about that, what we've got to know, these signs. Well, we don't like eponyms that much. I, I, actually, I do, I must say, but anyway, we're not supposed to, to love it. Uh, I love uh, anatomy history, but we're not supposed to be talking about eponyms that much. But we do need to know these because they're commonly used in clinical medicine. They have an anatomical basis. The significance of Froment's sign. Again, as I always say, what does the anatomy mean? In this case, as the interossei are so weak, if you're putting a piece of paper between the thumb and the index finger, the patient's trying to hold it in place by the actions of the first interosseus, dorsal interosseus, and the uh, adductor pollicis. They're so weak that the flexor pollicis longus almost instinctively tries to take over the function of the interossei, and the thumb bends in trying to hold that bit of paper. So that's Froment's sign in an ulnar nerve palsy. <clears throat> in ulnar nerve palsy B, the higher the injury, the more the claw deformity. Have a think about that. Well, we sure as heck know that's not the case. The higher the injury, the less the claw, because it seems a bit paradoxical. But if the flexor digitorum profundus, or at least the ulnar nerve innervated part of it, is denervated by a higher injury, then there's less ring and finger flexion, so a little less claw. It's a little bit uh, less kind of deformed in that way. C, there is, along with a flexed little finger, MCP flexion in this digit. In other words, we're saying MCP and PIP flexion in the digit of an ulnar nerve palsy. Have a think about that. There you've got to think about what the meaning of the question is. So the starkness of the claw is exaggerated by MCP, metacarpophalangeal joint hyperextension, not flexion. In the thumb, for example, that's the unopposed activity of the flexor pollicis longus. That's called the Jeanne's sign, J-E-A-N-N-E apostrophe S. So it's not about flexion of the MCP joints. They're hyperextended because of the unopposed activity of the extensors, and you get flexion of the PIP joints. Because again, the interossei, the lumbricals are denervated. They're normally extending those joints. So this explains the claw. The hand is kind of pulled back and clawed forwards. And then D, in ulnar nerve palsy, the ulnar nerve is best approached by reflecting the flexor carpi ulnaris ulnarwoods. Well, the ulnar nerve is exposed by just pulling the flexor carpi ulnaris towards you. And it lies on the medial side of the ulnar artery. If you remember, the nerves, the superficial radial nerve and the ulnar nerve embrace. They're on the outer side of the arteries, the radial artery and the 
the ulnar artery respectively. And that's important. If you're putting someone's hands gone through a window, for example, and you're exposing the ulnar nerve and the ulnar artery, these are the ways of exposing it. So I thought I had an odd number of questions, actually, 19. It looks like 20 in all. So then if you've got 18 out of 20, you've got 90%. That would be called a distinction. And I think there's actually 84 separate questions there. So if you've got 76 or more out of 84, you've done uh, pretty well. Too easy? Um, let's have a couple of weeks break. Uh, and... Then we're on to the lower limb. I'll see you next time.